I would like to invite everyone to open your Bibles to the book of Hebrews. We continue our journey in Hebrews uh, to Hebrews chapter 12, verses 18 to 29. For those of you who may be wondering, um, Pastor Doug has begun his sabbatical. He'll be gone till May, so I will be um, taking his place with regular preaching. Some might be glad that we, we did it. We finally did it, right? It's just, anyway, all right. Have you ever been in a situation where you're just kind of unaware of, of your context, of, of your surroundings? And in 2010, I had the opportunity to go to Spain with my mom and my brother. Spain is, is a great place, by the way. It's, it's, the food's really great. It's, it's beautiful. And, and, and Spain also enjoys what happens to be the greatest sport in the world, soccer. Uh, uh, and that is true. In fact, soccer is so big in Spain that um, they have two of the most successful teams in the world. You have Real Madrid and Barcelona. Now, when I start, you know, I talk about rivalries, right? Our minds go to, to well-known rivalries here to try to compare. Uh, in fact, for all you Chiefs fans, I could tell you by name the Raiders fans who are here and just walk off the stage and let you have your way with them. But I love Nathan Murphy and Rob Gunn and Mike Lomax to do that. <laughs> but in, in Europe, especially soccer, the rivalry is, is just another level. Like, they, <laughs> this isn't really a boast necessarily, but they regularly result in someone dying. Uh, it's, it's intense. Uh, it's very intense. So anyway, my brother, bless him, uh, decided he want, wanted, when we were in Madrid, he wanted a Cristiano Ronaldo Real Madrid jersey. For context, Cristiano Ronaldo is the pretty boy Tom Brady of soccer, okay? He's good, uh, but you also love to hate him, and Barcelona fans hate him. What you do not do is wear a Madrid jersey, much less a Ronaldo jersey, in the heart of Barcelona, but that's precisely what my brother did. He was totally oblivious to his context, and the whole day people were yelling at him, cussing at him, and flipping him off. I thought it was funny. <laughs> He's still alive, so it, it is funny, right? This is what happens when you are not fully aware of where you are. Where you are, in so many ways, determines how you live. And in the context of Hebrews, the giant message that we have encountered over the last few chapters and many sermons is endure by faith through suffering. That is the giant message, endure by faith through suffering. And this is the last message concerning endurance in Hebrews. This is the last one. And the author reminds the readers of their context. They inhabit exist in an already not yet kingdom. Forgetting that they inhabit this already not yet kingdom has dangerous consequences. But realizing it and embracing it is the key to enduring with joy. It is the final piece of the puzzle. 
So let's, let's read Hebrews chapter 12 and we'll find two reasons that this already not yet kingdom fuels our endurance. So Hebrews chapter 12, starting in verse 18. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest, and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion, into the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels and festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet what's more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. The already not yet kingdom. It fuels our endurance first because it is not punitive but purchased. The author here is, is coming off the heels of, of writing to them about discipline. That, that is what the last uh, half of, of chapter 12 is about, right? He, he has located their identity as sons and daughters of the Father. There are many reasons that these Christians suffer, these Jewish Christians suffer, right? In chapter 11, it's, it's part of his point was God's servants have always suffered, right? Christ suffered, that's in chapter 12. And then finally in chapter 12, God disciplines those he loves. So we have this multifaceted reason why Christians suffer. And there's a reason they can be sure that they are indeed sons and daughters because the kingdom that they occupy is not punitive. He writes, For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. This picture is the picture of, of Sinai, right? Specifically, he's writing about that moment in Sinai where God descends on the mountain, which creates this awesome and terrifying scene. And it's no mistake that he, said, he starts off by saying, for you have not come to what may be touched. Remember, the author, for some time now, for several chapters, even before chapter 11, has been encouraging them to live by faith. 
the temptation would have been to retreat to what was familiar, what, what they could see, what they could handle, what they could touch. Well, one of the hardest things for me in, in going to a foreign country, at least in the past when I was a much pickier eater, was, has always been the food. You know, you, you, know you, you, you go to another country and you eat the food and it's, and it's good and exciting for a while. But a, after a while, what I end up doing is I just end up making a list of all the foods that I cannot wait to eat when I get home. I remember when I first visited West Africa in 2009, one of the first things on my list was a, a steak quesadilla from Taco Bell with fire sauce. Because, right, American foods make me feel good and they they make me feel comfortable. They're what I'm familiar with. The temptation for them would have been for them to look back and think everything that they've been familiar with since childhood is better because it makes them feel safer and more comfortable. At least, at least they could say we didn't have as many trials. And the author is saying you... You've not come to what is familiar. You've not come to what can be seen or or touched because you don't want that. So he describes the scene at Sinai, this voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them, for they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that, that Moses said, I tremble with fear. This moment at at Sinai, the reason this this picture is so important is because it becomes like this snapshot of the whole Mosaic covenant, right? God's presence is blocked off because of sin, and sin results in your death. It was punitive. This is summed up in Leviticus 24. If anyone injures his neighbor as he has done, it shall be done to him. Fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. Whatever injury he has given a person shall be given to him. This is the definition of of punitive reciprocity. And if you follow the argument of of Hebrews, it was especially punitive because... As he's already pointed out, it couldn't do away with sin. So they were always in danger. And so the author is saying, you you have not come to this. You have no reason to fear being rejected or exiled or, or punished, condemned or judged by God. It's funny that in, in, in a whole context of an endurance, he says right that they could not endure the order that was given. I think that's purposeful. Here's what he's getting at. The Mosaic law could not produce endurance. No matter how many religious trappings you have, No matter how many rituals you perform, no matter how many religious performances or festivals, no matter how many sacrifices, no matter how much sin was exposed through judgment after judgment, these things cannot produce steadfast faithfulness. They can't produce endurance. Something else is is desperately needed. 
So the kingdom that we inhabit is, is not punitive. It's purchased. The author says you have not come to this, but, right, verse, verse 22, but God, right? But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels and, and festal gathering. Do you know what he's describing here? He's describing heaven itself. The, the very dwelling place of God. The, the Israelites could not even approach this mountain, this physical mountain that, that God has descended upon or else they would die. And yet he's saying we have entered into his actual presence. I want you to see how remarkable this is and, and what it means for humanity to be in the presence of God. Oren Martin wrote in his book, Bound for the Promised Land, and he's describing some of the scenes. He said, Exodus may be considered the epicenter of the Pentateuch. God will ensure that His people will live in His place under His rule. At the end of the song sung by Israel after crossing the Red Sea, the establishment of Israel in the land of Canaan is pictured as the planting of a tree in a mountain sanctuary, exactly the picture of Eden. In other words, what the author of Hebrews is describing is that Christians have entered into Eden once again. Sin no longer separates us. Not a jot, not a tittle, not an ounce. Sin does not separate us. We have walked past the cherubim with the flaming sword of judgment into the very presence of God. The cherubim have put down their swords, in fact, in favor for a feast with us. And we have done so because God has done it. Verse 22, 23, because of this reality, to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Not punitive, but purchased. These Christians may not yet be there. The world that they look out upon is definitely not Eden, but they are already there because of the sprinkled blood of Christ. Already not yet. Nothing more needs to be done. We're just waiting for the party to start. And the author, he uses several interesting phrases here, right? We, we've come to this festal gathering. We're waiting for this feast. And he says, we have come to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in, in heaven, right? Being, in, being the firstborn, especially in, in Jewish thought, meant that you had all the privileges and rights of being the firstborn and you were particularly beloved, okay? 
Uh, Israel was called the Lord's firstborn in Exodus. And the, this identity is now appropriated to Jesus, right? We read in Colossians, he's the, the firstborn over all creation. Now we read firstborn, but it's, it's wrong to read it in, in like cardinal order, right? First, second, third, right? That's, that's, that's not, he's not talking about order, he's talking about status. Beloved insured of rights and privileges. You, you actually have a claim to them. And he's saying all believers share the status of firstborn with all its rights and privileges. When God disciplines us as fathers and sons, we have no need to fear that he's punishing us because we're his firstborn. We're his beloved. You know, it's, it's interesting, right? We're reading about this like great reality and he's, you've come to the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven and to God, the judge of all. We're, we're in this passage, he seems to be making the, the opposite point. We're not under judgment. We don't want to come to God as judge, right? Tom Schreiner asks, why does the author refer to God as judge in a paragraph that stresses of the joy of coming into God's presence? The hearers are reminded that they will be vindicated on the last day. See, we're, we don't come to God as judge over our sin. We come to God as judge, as redeemer and vindicator. I love Psalm 130, what, what Psalm 130 verse 7 says about this. It says, O Israel, hope in the Lord. Why? For with the Lord is steadfast love, and with Him is plentiful redemption. God the judge, through Christ, will redeem every broken and fallen part of our lives, and that includes all of our trials and all of our sufferings. Every part. You know, you'll hear a skeptic might ask, um, you know, how could God allow so much evil in the world? And we, we look back on something like the Holocaust, and it's like, clearly, clearly, all this, this evil. And there's, there's the, the skeptic's question, right? But the, the, the part of faith says that we, we serve a God of redemption, and we will be stunned at the way He has redeemed all evil and all sin in the world for good and for His glory. Stunned. We've come to the God, the judge of all, to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, right? This, he, he refers to them as, as spirits of, of the righteous. This is referring to, to all believers of both the Old and New Testaments who, who have died. Right? They're, they're, they're no longer with us. They're spirits because they have not yet been clothed with their, their heavenly bodies. And why are they perfect? they're not hindered by sin they're in in God's presence finally and, and most foundationally we have come to Jesus the mediator of a new covenant and it is sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel it's an interesting phrase isn't it, it speaks a better better word that, that word better is, is where we actually get our, our, our sermon series title from, right? 
the greater and better covenant. In fact, this, is, this word better is this author's favorite word. It, it, it peppers the whole letter. We, he says we feel sure of, of better things, things that belong to salvation. A, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better and, and on and on and on. So, so how does, how does Jesus' blood speak a better word than the blood of Abel? There's a number of, of factors that you can consider here, right? Abel's faith. He talked about Abel's faith, right? He still speaks by his faith back in chapter 11, like in his, his sacrifice being acceptable to, to God because of his faith. Right? The reason Jesus' blood is, it speaks a better word is because Jesus is the ultimate sacrifice to God. But, but also, I think it's important that we consider that Abel, Abel was the first to die because of righteousness. That's what 1 John tells us, right? Why did Cain murder him? Because his brothers were righteous and his own deeds were, were evil. And his blood cries out for justice. Jesus didn't just die for righteousness. He died as the righteous one whose blood both satisfies justice against sin and anticipates justice against unrighteousness in the world. These things are already true of believers. If you believe in Christ, if you trust in Christ today, this is true of you. You, have, you. you are already there. You have no reason to fear loss. There was a story about this, this guy, this fisherman in the Philippines a few years ago, and he, had, he found the world's largest pearl. But he had no idea what it was worth. So what he decided to do is he put it under his bed as a good luck charm and it stayed there for 10 years. The key to endurance is realizing what is already in your possession. This kingdom is not punitive, but finally fully, definitively, satisfactorily purchased. So we come to this, this kingdom, and it, we're, we're there. It, you, you cannot change your status. No matter how hard you might try, if you are in Christ, you cannot change your status. The, the flip side of, of this is that since we already occupy this, this kingdom, this kingdom has a profound way of actually changing us here and now. When I was growing up, I went to Catholic elementary school from like three years old to sixth grade. My parents were never Catholic. They just sent me there. Guess they thought I'd learn something. And in third grade, I had a nun for a teacher, Sister Helene. She was as mean as she sounds. I was scared to death of Sister Helene. Her ruler, 
she would get in your face. You could smell her breath. I mean, it was just awful. May she rest in peace. <laughs> she made me plenty afraid, but she, <laughs> I did not develop a love for Catholicism. No matter how hard she tried, her influence was not lasting. It didn't really change me. This new kingdom endures and it creates an enduring people. The kingdom fuels our endurance because second, it is not fading but effectual. Here, here he issues the final warning of his letter, right? He, he's issued all these warnings, and this is his final one. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. And, and throughout this letter, this author has been stressing that God is speaking to them now. In these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son. Therefore, we must pay closer attention to what we have heard Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, says, today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts. He says, the Word of God is, is living and active. You, you have probably heard of a lot of spend a lot of time and energy trying to hear a word from God. Maybe you read Circle Maker, and you want to go home and draw a circle around you and wait there until you hear from God. I'm here to tell you, God is speaking to you through His Son by His Word. You got 66 books of that. And the warning is that we not refuse His voice. And you look at the history of Israel, right? The, the desert wanderings and the or the time of the prophets, and, and we, we wonder, how could you turn such a deaf ear to what God was saying to them? This is, this is what he refers to here, right? For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. Think of what the Israelites saw. Right? They, they saw the plagues on Egypt and, and Pharaoh judged and, and the gods of Egypt done away with. They, they saw the pillar of cloud and fire, the parting of the Red Sea, the, the judgments in the desert, the, the manna and the quail, the conquest of Canaan and the prophets. None of it was enough to produce faith and repentance in them. These Jewish Christians had seen none of that. We in this room have seen nothing like that. And yet, a higher obligation rests on us. These guys got judged severely for, listen, for refusing to listen to God's word through Moses. And we will be judged even more severely for refusing to heed the word through the Son. We're, we're good reformed folks, aren't we? we? We know that no person can produce faith on their own. Faith is a gift from God. It must come from Him. But if a person does not believe and does not listen, the onus does not fall on God. The fault does not lie with God. It falls solely on the one 
who does not listen. Listen, if you are judged, it will not be because God did not do enough. It will be because you looked at his son and his glorious kingdom and decided it's not enough. He has revealed himself perfectly in his son. This is far better than a pillar of fire and cloud or, or manna or, and quail. If, if, and if his word was effective on bringing curse under Moses, how much more will his word be affected in judging those who refuse his beloved son? You know, every, every time I buy blueberries from the grocery store, we buy them for Willa. She loves blueberries. I think of my, my grandmama and my granddaddy. You know, they, they had some blueberry bushes at their house. Uh, and I remember every summer we would go there and we'd, we'd pick a ton of blueberries, man. They were so good. Those are some of my favorite memories. And, and part of the, the temptation, right, is, is not just these Israelites and, and for us would be to say, well, it's, it's more comfortable, it's, it's easier to not be a Christian just to go back to what, what we had. But also to, to romanticize what we came from, right? Uh, they would, the temptation would be to romanticize what they had lost or, or given up uh, and, and be enticed to go back to what they were missing. That's the whole problem with the Israelites in, in the desert, right? They romanticized being in Egypt. They, and, and these guys, they couldn't go back and pick blueberries with grandma anymore, right? They were cut off from their families. So, so what the author is doing here is he's showing them that there's something like so much greater and so much better and so much sweeter than, than any of the world's offers. At that time, his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised yet once more, I will shake not only, only the earth, but also the heavens. By this, the author is showing God has put an expiration date on the things of earth. The sweetest gift, the, the best reality that you can picture on this earth has a, an expiration date. It's fading. The present order will not last. That's his point here. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken... That is, things that have been made in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. God has promised to put an end to the earthly, which for Israelites included the law of Moses in favor of something new and something permanent. God, see, when God is talking about making a new covenant, right, He's not just going to make a new earthly covenant, right? It's going to be like the law of Moses, just a little bit different, some tweaks. No, he's going to make a heavenly one. And this is what is meant by it will not be shaken. This heavenly covenant will have no possible way to void. No possible way for his people to thwart it. It will remain. 
He has made it permanent and effectual, right? He says, therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe for our God is a consuming fire. The enduring kingdom of God creates an enduring people for God. This kingdom is not fading, but it is effectual. It accomplishes in his purpose that which he intends. It will not fail. That's the point of this last phrase, right? This, that our God is a consuming fire. When you, when you read this, it, it has connotations of judgment, yes. And in, in this context especially, it reminds us of God's awesome zeal. He is more zealous in His purposes for us than we are for ourselves. And praise God for that. That God is a consuming fire means He will judge where His holiness is rejected, but He will redeem where His holiness is, re- is applied. In fact, right, the very warning to not refuse Him who is speaking will have its result in His people. It will have its effect, right? The warnings function as God's way to keep His people. The good news is, if you're worried, if you're shaken up by these warnings, then that is what it's intended to do. And and do you see the the paradox here? Right, Rather than this unshakable kingdom creating apathy, it creates alertness, doesn't it? A people who truly grasp this will be all the more diligent to fight sin and endure. It's not an excuse to be lazy. And the intended result is grateful worship with reverence and awe. Gratefulness reminds us of the truth of things. When when we're discontent, when we we grumble and and complain, we're actually forgetting what good we have. And and honestly, the truth of, of the situation. Gratefulness reminds us of all that we've been given and the wonderful reality of who God is for us in the Son. And not begrudgingly. God loves to be the God of His people in His Son. Paul wrote in in Colossians 1, this is one of the best pictures of this reality, he says, Give thanks to the Father. Be grateful. Why? Who has qualified you? To share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Are you disqualified in yourself? Absolutely. You would disqualify yourself every day. But God has qualified you. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness. And transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son. In whom we have redemption. The forgiveness of sins. The reality of the gospel. Everything that Christ is for us. Everything that He has done for us, all that He joyfully continues to do for us, and all that He will yet do for us is a cause for ceaseless worship and praise. This is the truth that we go back to time and again. 
We can never, ever, ever exhaust His grace. There's a minister in Scotland. His name was Kenny MacDonald, and um, he, he was converted suddenly out of a life of sin. I think he was probably in his 20s. He, there was this, these kind of revival meetings happening around Scotland, and so he told his, I think he told his mom that he would go to one of them, and at this revival meeting, he was converted. And he described his conversion this way. I never, ever looked back. God saved me that night in the house, and he will never hear the end of it. I will praise him throughout eternity for his patience and grace for a sinner like me. I've never lost what he gave me that night. In addition to the gift of salvation, he gave me tears. And I've never lost the tears. God has given us a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Powers of hell, schemes of man, sin and failure, it cannot be shaken. May he never hear the end of it. Isn't that something? God wants his people to be characterized by gratefulness. God isn't interested in creating a people who are begrudging or, or cold. God wants a people who sing. A people whose hearts are so full at the sheer magnitude of, of, all, of who He is and all that He does, we, we don't let Him hear the end of it. You have done Nothing to deserve it. And you can do nothing to jeopardize it. Christ is everything for you. All that you need Him to be and more. He dazzles you with His grace. He likes to dazzle us with His grace. It's precisely in realizing this and knowing that you are in a kingdom of marvelous, unshakable, unearned, full, and free grace that will ignite endurance. You are already there. In Christ, through Christ, for Christ. Let's pray.